Hi, I'm Josh, and welcome to the Wild Nature Photography Podcast, the podcast that talks the art and craft of nature photography. It is the 8th of March, 2022, and this is podcast number 40, 8th of March. Jesus, this year is is just flying past. It's hard to believe that, you know, we're already almost halfway through March, almost. I say it's the 8th of March, but we're getting closer to halfway through March. But with January and February already gone, it feels like this year is going to be one of those years that just absolutely rockets past. Certainly 2021 uh, was a disaster and was uh, ran about as slow as I think I've had a year run in many, many times, many, many years. But 2022, boy, it seems to be rocketing past. Um, let's move on to the topic of today's podcast. Uh, I'm in the final throes of my preparations for two expeditions, the first of which is to Ellesmere Island in search of the Arctic white wolf. And then from Ellesmere Island, I'm actually going to go directly up to, um, well, not directly, but via London, I'm going to Norway and then on to Svalbard for my Svalbard Return of the Light expedition. This was an expedition that was actually scheduled to run back in 2020 before the pandemic hit. Then the pandemic hit through a major spanner in the works and the trip got delayed until 2021. And then with the ongoing pandemic, it got delayed until 2022. And now finally, I'm getting an opportunity to, to complete this trip. So I am very much looking forward to that. Svalbard at, uh, in April is absolutely fantastic. It is a wonderful place to be, beautiful light, uh, fantastic opportunities. It's just a great place to be at that time of the year. So as I say, I'm in the final preparations of um, preparing for both of these expeditions. And uh, I was hoping to be able to pack for both these trips in the single and one single large North Face duffel bag. And I've just now finished trying to shoehorn everything into that bag. And it just isn't going to work, unfortunately. I just have too much gear. Because I'm going between the two locations, I really need uh, and because I also have actually a private snowmobile expedition with a client in Svalbard before I board the ship, I actually need quite a lot of equipment for this trip. I need my snowmobile helmet, uh, which takes up quite a lot of space in my bag, plus all the extreme cold weather gear for temperatures as low as minus 50 in, in Ellesmere Island. So packing is a bit of a nightmare. I've, I've had to spill over into a second duffel. Uh, one of the smaller North Face duffels. It's just how it's going to have to be. I mean, it's going to be a bit more of a logistical nightmare to manage through airports, but I really have no alternative. I just cannot fit everything in the one duffel bag with the big baffin boots, with the big outdoor down um, clothing, especially the pants and jacket. They just take up a lot of space, not to mention the gloves, the hats, all the other stuff that goes along with it. So um, even with the two bags, I've had to make the decision to actually ditch my tripod and not bring it. Uh, I had planned to bring it along with me, but ultimately I don't really need it. It was a bit of a luxury to have the tripod with me. I can do everything handheld. I like to be lying down on the ground when I'm photographing wildlife. Uh, quite often I'll just use a beanbag for that when I'm lying in the snow. Uh, having a tripod would have been nice when I'm on the ship in uh, Svalbard because it makes operating uh, the large camera and lens much, much easier uh, when I'm shooting from ship. But I can live without it, and and that's uh, I guess that's the key factor. So unfortunately, the tripod's had to come out of the bag. Everything else will fit. Um, because the tripod's out of the bag, it also means the big Sackler fluid head, which I like to use, is also out of the bag, and that actually saves about four kilos um, nearly five kilos with a tripod. So it's a nice weight saving and certainly a, a nice bulk saving as well. But as I say, it's really the big winter cold weather gear that just, it just takes up a lot of space in the bag, uh, with all the layers that you need to have in order to protect yourself against the cold when you're exposed to it for so long. It just takes up 
a ton of room and there just isn't room unfortunately i'd have to really take both large north face duffels if i was going to bring the tripod and that's just i've done it before it's not fun to try and manage those two big duffels through airports even with the second smaller one it's going to be a bit of a pain but as i say just no alternative my plan is to actually repack completely when i get to uh when we get to ellesmere island after a lot of thought on how to pack my camera gear and I'll come to camera gear because camera gear is really the topic of this of this podcast and uh why I've ended up uh converting to the dark side but we'll come to that um I want to get back on just what I was finishing and I've actually now just lost my train of thought I'm sure it'll come back to me oh uh I was talking about repacking so once I get to Ellesmere Island I'm actually going to repack and reorganize my bags and leave a bag in Grisfjord before we head out on snowmobile um I've packed inside one of my bags the a large f-stop uh, camera backpack that I'm actually going to repack all my camera gear into once I arrive in Grisfjord. So just to get to Grisfjord for all the airline travel, I'm going to use my SKB Roller Pelican. I just really love it for protecting the gear when I'm traveling on and off aircraft, but then I'll repack it into a backpack uh, for the actual expedition. The reason I decided to do that was, although the Pelican case offers better protection, I really want to be able to have cameras assembled and ready to go because if wildlife turns up all of a sudden, I may not have time to unpack a pelican case, screw a camera and lens together and get the photographs before the wildlife is gone. So by keeping it all together in a backpack, one camera with the long lens, one camera with the short lens, both assembled and ready to go, I can now operate much more quickly. So it's a little bit of a Rob Peter to pay Paul situation, but there's no ideal situation really. There's no, everything's a compromise when it comes to transporting and working with camera gear on these sort of expeditions. But that's the way I've decided to approach it. I think uh, it will work very well for me. When I've done snowmobile expeditions in the past, I have also always used a backpack with the cameras fully assembled that I've strapped to the back of the snowmobile. This is a little bit different in that we'll be riding behind a snowmobile in a large uh, sledge. Um, but I think I can keep my camera bag sort of between my legs, which means it's it's always there, it's always accessible, and I don't have to dive back into my Pelican case. So that's how I'm going to do it. It's been a lot of soul searching for deciding how I'm going to actually use my camera gear on this trip, but that's ultimately what I've decided. That's what I'm packing for. So the F-stop bag has been packed inside the North Face Duffel, and I've just stuffed it full of accessories and that I need for this trip and clothing and things like that. So it's not a lot of empty air inside the bag. And that does take up quite a bit of space. I could probably fit everything into the one North Face duffel if I didn't take the F-stop backpack, but I think I'd regret it when I was on location. So that's why I've decided to go that way. So anyway, let me come to, um, I'll, we'll come to that camera gear and the topic of this pod- podcast in a moment. I just want to actually talk about the flights because the flights to get to Ellesmere from Australia actually even eclipse uh, in terms of number of flights uh, how many I would actually do to get down to Gould Bay for the Emperor Penguins in Antarctica. So if I was flying down there, I would typically fly Melbourne to Sydney, Sydney to Santiago, Santiago to Punta Arenas, and then from Punta Arenas down to Antarctica, and then from Antarctica at our base camp, take a twin otter out to the um, to the Emperor Penguins, which is a total of about, I think it's five flights. Let me just work, is it five flights? Melbourne to Sydney, Sydney uh, Santiago, Santiago Punta. Yeah, it's five flights. Um, but to actually get to Ellesmere Island, I need to go Melbourne to Sydney, Sydney to Vancouver. I need to overnight in Vancouver, then Vancouver to Ottawa. And I need to overnight again in Ottawa. And then from Ottawa, life gets a little bit more complicated because the planes get smaller and smaller for each stop. So it's Ottawa to Equalit, Equalit to Arctic Bay, Arctic Bay to Resolute, and then finally a small Twin Otter aircraft to, to, uh, to, uh, Greasefield and Ellesmere Island. So that's a total of, uh, what did I work that out as? It's like nine flights, I think, 
uh, each week just to get to Ellesmere Island. So uh, plus, of course, then the return flights as well. But I won't fly back to Australia directly. I'll actually fly back to Ottawa and then to Vancouver. And from Vancouver, I'll, I'll hop across to London, from London to Oslo, and then Oslo up to uh, Svalbard. It means by the time I get back from this trip, uh, I will have done a total of 19 flights um, just for these two expeditions. Uh, I already did 11 flights for both the Iceland Arctic Fox trip and the Finland winter wildlife trip, which basically means by the time I get back in uh, mid-April, I will have done 30 flights already this year. So that's a lot of flying. I'm, I'm probably going to have less flying than that in the second, uh, sorry, in the second quarter. Uh, I'm hoping to have less flying. Certainly I'm going to have a month off when I get back from Svalbard. That will be nice just to recharge the batteries. Um, but to certainly have a little bit less flying will be very nice. I certainly don't want to do 30 flights every quarter of this year. That would just be, be really quite crazy. As it is, I'm probably looking at close to 100 flights this year. So a lot of flying this year. But anyway, let's put all that aside. Let's come to the topic of today's podcast, which is the journey towards the dark side for me is now complete. And what I mean by that is I have purchased a second Canon EOS R3 mirrorless camera. Uh, I made the decision yesterday when I was considering exactly what equipment I was going to pack for this trip to Ellesmere, what was I going to take with me? Uh, I had to really stop and think about this very, very hard. I had a good opportunity to test the EOS R3 in the cold in Iceland and in Finland in very difficult conditions. And I've certainly had that camera already frozen, like a frozen block of ice, and I know it kept working. So I'm much less concerned about that camera in the cold now. I've also been liaising with my friend Dave in the States. He's been using it in extreme cold as well without issue. And there've been no other reports online about problems in the extreme cold. Now, of course, I don't know anyone who's actually used it in minus 50 yet. We'll find out how that goes if we actually encounter minus 50. But looking at the sort of temperatures that we might run into in Ellesmere, I'm hoping it won't get colder than about minus 30, perhaps minus 35. If we do get colder than that and we do dip into the minus 40s and minus 50s, it's certainly going to be a real challenge for any camera, not just the Canon EOS R3, but it's even a challenge for the 1DXs in that kind of temperature. Now, I have used them before in those temperatures and they have continued to work. And my hope is that the R3 will be just as good. I think it will be based on what I've seen so far with the performance of the R3. And thinking about what camera gear I was actually going to pack, because I was packing the R3 as my primary camera, one R3 and one 1DX Mark III was actually my original thinking. Uh, because that was the case, I was packing the 14 to 35 RF, which is really a do-it-all wide-angle uh, zoom lens for the RF system. It's a fantastic lens. It's pin sharp, corner to corner, really is small, lightweight. It's just about the ideal lens. And it, often 16 to 35 is just not quite wide enough. So 14 to 35 in the RF system is a real boon. So I really wanted to take that lens. I also really wanted to take a mid-range zoom. So just for some candid snaps and things like that. And I already had the RF 24 to 105. That mates up very nicely with the 14 to 35. And the new Canon RF 70 to 200 2.8 is a lot smaller than the old EF version. So I also wanted to pack that because it was smaller and lighter. So when you consider that I'm now packing three EF lenses that can't be used, sorry, RF lenses rather, that can't be used on a 1DX, I was really starting to question, well, why am I taking a 1DX? You know, is it really just as a backup for the R3 in case the R3 falls over on the 600mm lens? It's a lot of weight to carry as a backup for the R3 when I, can, I can't use it on three quarters of the lenses I'm bringing with me. It just didn't make a lot of sense. So I was heading over to Canon yesterday to pick up a 2x teleconverter for my 400 2.8. 
thinking I would ask the question, you know, do you guys have an R3 in stock? Knowing that at the moment these things are pretty much unobtainium around the world, they're basically impossible to get. And Canon Rumors even said on their website a couple of days ago that there's now a six-month delay and backlog on R3 orders. Anyway, as it happens, fate was on my side. Sun Studios and Canon actually had an R3 for a customer in stock that they no longer could afford to pick up and were happy to let go, so I grabbed it. So uh, it was a spur-of-the-moment decision. It means I've now got two EOS R3s with me for this trip, so I've got the perfect backup to the original R3, and I picked up the 2 times teleconverter. And the reason I picked up the 2 times teleconverter, my thinking behind that was I currently don't own a 600mm RF lens. I have the EF Mark III, which I can use with the adapter on the R3 quite well, and it works absolutely fine. I've tested it, it works perfectly. But if the 400 2.8 is RF that I own, and it is a lot more flexible than the 600 if I take a 1.4 and a 2 times teleconverter, I've then got a 400, I've got a 560, and I've also got an 800-5.6. And that really gives me a fantastic trio of options from which to choose in the field. So I've actually ended up digressing a fair way from what I originally thought I was going to take with me on this trip. My 600 millimeter is actually staying at home. Uh, if I had taken that, I would have quite a large gap between the 70 to 200 and the 600, which made me a little bit uncomfortable. And I don't yet own the Canon 100 to 500, and nor did I want to have to pack another lens again. So what I decided to do after much soul searching and agonizing over it was to take my 400 2.8 RF and to take a 1.4 and a 2 times teleconverter. Now I've done some testing with the 1. Actually, I tested the 1.4 extensively in Iceland and Finland, and I found it's basically invisible on, on the camera. I cannot tell uh, when I've used it, when I have it, unless I look at the focal length. The the quality is just that good, uh, and it's very very close with the 2x as well. So. Uh, I think some of the problems with teleconverters and focus that existed with DSLR cameras really no longer exist uh, in the mirrorless world. And that is fantastic because it opens up a lot of other options for these big telephoto lenses. So that's how I've ended up deciding to pack. I'm going with the 14 to 35 RF, the 24 105 RF, the 7200 RF, uh, the 2.8, then a 400 2.8 RF with a 1.4 and a 2X teleconverter. And that'll give me focal lengths all the way from 14 millimeter to 800 millimeter. And importantly, it doesn't have any really big gaps in the focal range either. It gives me a lot of options. So by taking a full mirrorless RF kit, my journey towards the dark side and mirrorless is actually now complete. And when I got home last night and unpacked the second R3 and I started to think about this and what it actually meant was I am probably now close to done, if not done, with DSLR cameras. And if you had said to me just a few months ago, Josh, you'll be shooting a full mirrorless kit in a couple of months' time, I wouldn't have believed you and I probably would have laughed. I just didn't think it was going to happen and the transition would happen so quickly. But it has. Uh, my time in Iceland and Finland with the new R3 has really convinced me that the issues, if you like, for lack of a better word, or the gotchas with mirrorless cameras are far outweighed by the benefits of blackout-free shooting in the R3. That's just a godsend for wildlife. 30 frames a second is nice to have. Not a deal breaker for me, but nice to have. But more importantly, this animal eye autofocus and focus points right out to the edge of the camera. Those are the three things that for me made the switch just a no-brainer. So now what it means is I will probably sell my DSLR equipment when I get back from these two expeditions. I just, quite honestly, I can't see myself reaching for the 1DX Mark III anymore when the R3 pretty much does everything better than the 1DX Mark III. Now, I still don't feel that it's as rugged. I still feel having now used the articulated screen 
um, in the field in winter in difficult conditions that it is prone to breakage. And I need to be very, very careful if I do take the screen out, how I use it. One of the interesting things I encountered that you don't think about when you're sitting with the camera, perhaps in your lap, setting it up is shooting with the camera in those sort of conditions where you've got blowing snow and the snow's getting in and around the articulated screen and melting because of the warmth of your hands and then refreezing, the articulated screen actually ended up freezing in place in Iceland. Uh, and I couldn't unfreeze it. I literally had to melt the uh, the snow that had refrozen in there as ice before I could get it open. So that's just something that I'm now aware of. It means I probably articulate the screen even less than I would have before. And for you know, sake of closure, I've said it before, I'll say it again, I would have preferred the R3 not have an articulated screen. And it is my serious hope that when an R1 comes out, that it doesn't have the articulated screen. I know, again, I'm really in the minority on this. I know most of you out there love articulated screens and wouldn't trade them for anything. For me, I just think they're a real pain. I, I could live without it. But again, it's a small price to pay for all the other benefits that that mirrorless system brings. Uh, another interesting thing, that I noticed in relation to autofocus between the R3 and the 1DX Mark III. Now, typically when I'm shooting in heavy snow conditions, when the snow is falling and I'm shooting wildlife, I'll be using Case 2 uh, in the autofocus uh, menu. And Case 2 just means that the focus will tend to stick more on the animal and not jump to the snow that's falling around it. Uh, and typically that has been very, very useful for me with the 1DX Mark III cameras. It's very effective at maintaining focus on the animal. Now, it's not as useful, I'm finding, in the EOS R3. It still jumps to the snow quite a lot. And I'm finding this is probably just a case of firmware. We're still only in firmware version 1.01 .01 in the AS R3 at the moment. I think this will improve as firmware versions go on. But certainly at the moment, <coughs> excuse me, the autofocus in case two on the R3 is just not quite as sticky as it is on the 1DX Mark III. I think the 1DX Mark III does a better job of tracking the overall subject in that regard, but it can't track the eye like the R3 can. And that's where the R3 really, really shines. And that ability to shoot wildlife you know, with the lens wide open or close to wide open because you know the camera is going to focus on the eye and it's going to be sharp. That gives you a lot of confidence in the field to really get out of the comfort zone, open up the aperture and go for shots that you might not otherwise have gone for. So there are some other benefits that are going to come from shifting to the EOS R3 for me. Carrying two EOS R3s is a lot lighter than carrying two EOS 1DX Mark III's. So that weight saving is always greatly appreciated as well. Uh, as to my 600mm EF, what am I going to do with it? To be honest, I haven't yet completely made up my mind. If this expedition with the 400 and the two times teleconverters, if that works as I hope it will, perfectly and seamlessly, I may even uh, reconsider my need for a 600mm lens. I just need to see how I go this trip with the teleconverters and the 400. If it works as well as I hope, I may not even need a 600mm going forward. I may just be able to get away with the 400 2.8 with the 1.4 and 2x teleconverters. As I say, that gives me more flexibility anyway. The ability to have 400mm, 560 or 800 is definitely a, uh, a lot more useful than just having 600, 840, because it's rare that you go out to 1200 millimeter with the 600. There's just too many atmospheric uh, issues between you and the subject if you're at 1200 millimeters usually. Certainly in the freezing cold when you've got a lot of ice particles in the air, even at 840 millimeters, a lot of the time the image won't be that sharp. And it's not because of the autofocus, because there's just too many particles in the air of ice between you and the subject. The same thing happens in heat haze if you're sitting if you're shooting in hot environments such as Africa with very, very long lenses, you can have animals at quite a distance that are not sharp. Even though the camera has effectively 
focused on them correctly, the heat haze means that it's not sharp. Same thing happens in the cold. Uh, so that's also a consideration. So I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to do with my 600EF yet. I am inclined just to hang on to it and use it with an adapter. That's certainly an option as well. I just have to see how much I use it because obviously there's a lot of money tied up in, in that lens, uh, the equivalent of about sixteen or 17000 Australian dollars tied up in that lens. So it's a lot of money to have sitting uh, in the cupboard if it's not being used. So I'll evaluate that when I get back from uh, Ellesmere Island and Svalbard and make a decision on what I'm going to do in that area. Certainly, though, my transition to the dark side is complete. I am now a mirrorless shooter. It's happened way faster than I thought it was going to. I honestly just didn't think it was going to happen this fast. I am glad that I didn't jump earlier than I have. Um, I have seen too many issues with mirrorless cameras in the cold. Um, I have seen too many development issues with them. Uh, I feel now that the technology is relatively mature. Uh, and that the current generation of mirrorless cameras from Canon, Sony, and Nikon in particular, so that would be things like the Nikon Z9, the Sony A1, and the Canon EOS R3, and even the R5 for that matter, and R6, have really come of age and now really are effectively professional cameras that can be used by people who are really, really serious about their photography. And it's interesting that I am really now starting to see very few DSLRs now on my workshops. Almost everybody is shooting full mirrorless kits these days. Uh, the Ellesmere Island expedition is a little bit of a uh, anomaly just because we are going into such an extreme environment. And I know a lot of people are bringing their DSLRs for this trip simply because they are proven entities. And I totally understand that and I respect that. And I think it's the right decision uh, to be bringing something that is a proven entity in the cold is a very good idea. I do have a little bit of a luxury in that if I go on this trip and both my cameras fail in minus 40 degrees in that I know I will be back in Ellesmere again in 2023 and I'll have another opportunity. So I have that in the back of my pocket, um, which is just a little bit of insurance, I guess. But I'm very comfortable going with the two R3s, having now used them in the sort of conditions I've used them in. And I really abused that camera when I was in Iceland and Finland. I really did throw it around in the snow. I deliberately got that thing frozen and completely cold-soaked. I gave it a very, very hard time. Um, I certainly gave it an equally hard time in Finland as well because I wanted to test it and see just how good it was. And could it stand up to the sort of abuse that I'm typically dealing out to my cameras because... To be honest with you, they're just tools for me and I'm out there to take the photographs. Um, I'm not really into fondling the cameras and having them sit in nice glass cabinets where I can see them. That's not what they're about for me. Those who photograph with me in the field know how hard I am on gear and how I'll just dump it in the snow and then come and pick it up a little while later when I'm ready. So... Uh, I'm hoping that uh, this will be the right decision for me. It feels like the right decision and the right time to be making the transition, <coughs> excuse me, making the transition to mirrorless. It's just happened faster than I thought it would. I really felt that I was going to operate more or less in a hybrid situation for probably six months. And I even talked about this in a prior podcast where I would operate uh, uh, both the DSLR and the mirrorless camera for quite some time. It just hasn't worked out that way for me. Um, the testing of the SR3 convinced me that this was the way to go for all the benefits that I mentioned. And as I said, the issues with running RF glass on DSLR cameras and the fact that you cannot, and then I wanted to take this particular series of RF glass with me on this Ellesmere trip, meant that really it was the time to get a second R3. 
Uh, I did think about the R5 as an option, but I, the reason I went with the second R3, there were several reasons I went with the second R3, actually. First one is I really like to operate with two cameras of exactly the same type. I like to be able to shift without thinking about where buttons are located, different menus or different ergonomics. It's very important to me in the field. Um, the second the second reason was batteries. I wanted to have a camera that used the same battery so that they were interchangeable and I didn't have to carry two separate chargers. That was also very important to me because two separate chargers, two separate sets of batteries becomes a real pain, um, especially when you're carrying batteries for heated socks and gloves and things like that, which I am on this trip as well. So that's it. My transition to the dark side, as I say, is now complete. I am now a full mirrorless shooter for not only this expedition, but the Svalbard expedition as well. Uh, I I will be leaving for Ellesmere via Canada um, just in just a little over 48 hours from now. So I have a lot to do between now and then. I need to finish my packing, which, as I said, is now two North Face duffels instead of one. And uh, I need to do the usual documentation for entry to Canada and organize a COVID test, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I am going to try and podcast from the road a little bit, although I'm going to be offline a lot while I'm in Ellesmere Island and again while I'm in Svalbard, both out on snowmobile expedition and also on the ship as well. So the opportunity for internet access is going to be very, very limited, but I'll try and do some blog posts, <coughs> excuse me, and also... Do a podcast or two if I get the chance as well. I'm really, really keen on that. Um, one last toy I'm considering taking with me, I haven't committed to it yet, is I'm considering taking a DJI, DJI Pocket 2 uh, to do a bit of vlogging. I'm not a vlogger. I don't really want to be a vlogger, but I think it might be interesting for Ellesmere to shoot some video along the way, and that's a very good way to do it. So I may pick up a DJI uh, Pocket 2 tomorrow before I leave for the, uh, for the airport. I'm still thinking about that and and which way I want to go. So that's it. I think we're going to wrap it up there. I've gone on a bit longer than I really wanted to, but I think it was important to sort of document my thought process on why I shifted to mirrorless and why it's happened so fast for me. I really thought it was going to be a much slower transition than it ended up being, but the benefits outweigh the cons and it was the time to do it. So that's it from me for today. I'm Josh. It has been the 8th of March, 2022. This is the Wild Nature Photography Podcast, and I look forward to seeing you out in the field where I hope very, very much that I'll be photographing the white wolf in just a few days from now. We'll see how that goes.